Welcome, Transplant Pharmacy community, to the latest edition of the mTOR You Know podcast, the new podcast produced by your very own ACCP, IMTR, PRN, New Practitioner Council. My name is John Lyons, and today I'm actually not going to be hosting this edition of the mTOR You Know. We're actually going to be hosted by Drs. Jillian Dan and Alexandra Bixby, uh, who are both NPC members, and Alexandra is actually our a NPC vice chair this year. They're joined by a panel of some very beloved transplant pharmacists uh, within our community, Dr. Matt Harris, Dr. Samir Patel, as well as Dr. Jennifer Melarano, as they talk about a very, very important topic uh, in pharmacy, the medical professions, and the workforce in general, which is burnout. Uh, this is very pertinent, especially as we round out Mental Health Awareness Month. So we hope to provide you a little bit of information on burnout, as well as here from our panel members uh, as to their experiences and how they have been able to deal with burnout during their very, very successful careers. But that's enough for me. So saddle up all you cool cats and kittens and let's get over to our panel session. Hello, everyone. Thank you for turning, tuning in to the mTOR You Know podcast. This podcast is created by the members of the ACCP Immunology and Transplant PRN New Practitioner Committee. We are really excited to have a great panel of pharmacists joining us to discuss burnout. We'll be your hosts. My name is Jillian Dan. I'm a solid organ transplant clinical pharmacist at University of Virginia Health. I've been working in this role for about two years after completing my PGY1 and PGY2 residency at the same site. In this role, I rotate through inpatient and outpatient abdominal and thoracic transplant services. And my name is Alexandra Bixby. I'm a solid organ transplant clinical pharmacist at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. I've been working here for about one year since I finished my residency at Michigan Medicine. And in this current role, I rotate between inpatient abdominal transplant, inpatient thoracic, and outpatient abdominal transplant services. And it's my pleasure to introduce our panel members for today. First, we have Matt Harris, Director of Transplant Pharmacy Programs, Abdominal Transplant Clinical Pharmacist, and the PGY2 RPD at Duke University. He's also the ACCP IMTR Workforce Committee Chair, who's currently working on developing a burnout assessment of transplant pharmacist workforce. Second, we have Jennifer Melarano, an abdominal transplant clinical pharmacy specialist at University of Rochester Medical Center. Jennifer has served as a committee, as the chair of committees in both the AST Transplant Pharmacy Community of Practice and the ACCP IMTR PRN. When reaching out to pharmacists to consider being members of this panel, Jennifer was described as being a super mom, so we're really excited to talk with her today about her experiences as a working parent. Third, we have Samir Patel, who's an MSL at Veloxis Pharmaceuticals, and Samir was a solid organ transplant clinical pharmacist at Houston Methodist Hospital, where he participated in clinical research, QI committees, and started the PGY2 transplant residency and served as its RPD for seven years. He's been with Veloxis now since 2016. Great, welcome panel. So when our committee initially introduced this topic as a possible podcast subject, I have to be honest with you, I didn't know much about burnout, the definition, incidence, or impact. If you'd asked me at that point if I've experienced burnout, I think I would have said yes. 
I think the times I felt burnt out were primarily when I was a resident, feeling tired by the hours I was keeping, overwhelmed with the deadlines, and kind of feeling like I was just checking off boxes. I was eager to complete training and achieve a better work-life balance post-residency. So Alex, what experience would you say you've had with burnout? What was your idea of burnout when we started working on this webinar? So I definitely agree with you, Jill. I feel like I've had points in my career, especially during PGY1, um, that I've experienced burnout. Um, during this time, I was constantly moving from one task to the other without taking any time for myself. I feel like I was being stretched very thin and maybe putting a lot into a lot of different tasks that I couldn't give any one thing my 100%. Um, so far since I've been in my current position, I've been pretty fortunate because I feel like rotating between the different services gives me some time to kind of reset each month um, when I start feeling a little fatigued. Thanks for sharing that experience, Alex. And now we'd like to turn it over to our panel. If you guys wouldn't mind, would you say you've experienced burnout during your careers? Uh, well, the answer for me is yes, I, uh, I definitely have. It was about seven or eight years ago, I would say now. So it was actually uh, relatively early in my career um, when I was working at a different institution in a completely different setting. So I have certainly, certainly experienced burnout, yes. Um, at the time, I don't know that I recognized that I was necessarily experiencing burnout. I'm not sure that that long ago uh, it gets as much press as it does now or is as widely recognized or such a focus. Um, but looking back retrospectively now, I can certainly identify the symptoms and the syndrome and uh, characterize that for sure as, as burnout. Um, I definitely experienced the dimension of exhaustion. Um, I was just completely depleted at the time. Um, I, I remember there was one evening I came home from work. I'd worked two back-to-back 80-hour -back work weeks and was living with my fiance at the time. And I came into the house and went straight to the couch and just crashed and I hadn't had dinner and he uh, sort of looked at me and was like aren't you gonna eat and you know I was just so depleted I couldn't couldn't even think about getting off the couch and he got really upset with me and said you know this is enough enough is enough you can't even complete your ADLs which is something I'll, I'll never forget that conversation so that was sort of a low point uh, for me during that time um, and, you know, I also feel like I can relate to some of the characteristics related to depersonalization. I felt cynical. I had, you know, a negative attitude at the time towards my job and coworkers and was quick to being sort of irritable. Um, and I feel like all those things sort of lead us to feel like we're ineffective and, you know, have pretty low motivation or drive uh, to get things done. So. So at the time I would say I didn't, I don't think that I knew that it was burnout, but now that I've learned more about it and I'm better educated, I certainly experienced that early on in my career, yeah. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm very similar. When I heard this question, I, my thought was yes, no, maybe, I, I don't know. Um, I've definitely learned a lot about burnout in the last year. And I would say I've definitely experienced the uh, emotional exhaustion. I think all of us have had times at work where you're just struggling, the work continues to pile up you wake up every day and like, I gotta go back and do it all again. And you just feel like you can't catch up. It's, it's definitely occurred in my career. I would agree. I, I, I think I have, um, in my experience, it was probably a little bit more of a crash and burn type of experience rather than a burning out. Um, and uh, 
I think it was a combination of work-related stress, but also personal uh, personal matters. Um, you know, a time in my life when I had to, you know, be an adult actually and grow up, probably in my early 30s. But, you know, when you're starting to balance things like having a family or starting a family with really putting in a lot of time uh, at work and being stressed out from work, I think that's kind of when things started to go downhill. Um, but uh, but I, I wouldn't say that it's been a you know frequent part of my my career. Thank you all for sharing those experiences. Um, so when we were preparing for this podcast, we kind of wanted to see what was in the literature um, about burnout. So we started with the definition. Um, the International Classification of Diseases, or ICD, considers burnout as an occupational phenomenon, and it defines burnout as a syndrome resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's characterized with the following three criteria, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job, um, negative or cynical feelings related to one's job, and then reduced professional efficacy. Um, and when diagnosing burnout, there were a few uh, burnout inventory scales that have been studied. A common one that's been validated is called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. And there's a few variations of this tool for different populations. So there's a general tool, an educator one, and then one for medical professionals. And it's a 22 item questionnaire. It uses a Likert scale to assess those three criteria for burnout. So emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment. Um, switching back to our panelists here, um, do you um, feel like you have, um, you, what you have experienced has fit this criteria? I could start for that one. Um, like I said before, I did, I have felt uh, the emotional exhaustion type of burnout, um, but luckily I, I have not had uh, depersonalization and I, I feel like my work is fulfilling, so I don't have a reduced professional uh, efficacy right now. That, that may change in the future, but right now I, I, I do enjoy my job. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Matt, actually. It's hard to tell also from like the actual uh, ICD definition you know, because I feel like we all experience these these symptoms from time to time, at least most of them. Um, but I, I can't say that, you know, it's anything more than transient periods for the most part. Um, you know, I, I think something like reduced professional efficacy in the case of a transplant pharmacist or any clinical pharmacist for that matter, if it gets to the point where it's affecting how affecting your ability to conduct your work and that really becomes a dangerous thing. And that's when you kind of, you are forced to step back, uh, really need to step back. Um, but I can't say that I ever reached that, maybe that characteristic, but definitely, you know, some of the energy depletion, mental depletion, exhaustion, uh, that kind of comes with the territory, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you both. I think that the first thing uh, that came for me when I experienced this several years ago was certainly the dimension of exhaustion and probably the dimension that I, you know, had the most difficulty with. Um, but I do think that I, uh, I experienced some of the characteristics of depersonalization and uh, inefficacy, and that served as a, a real learning opportunity for me that's helped to sort of shape my uh, approach to work-life balance and work in general right now, uh, because it was a pretty low place, and frankly, I don't ever want to go back there. And how would you say this 
differs from kind of those everyday stressors? I mean, Jennifer, it sounds like you had a much different experience when you felt burnt out than just that everyday kind of stress. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think all of us can agree that uh, heavy workloads and deadlines and pressure are just a basic fact of life that we often feel overwhelmed and stretched thin, and that doesn't mean that we're experiencing burnout. But if the stress in your life continues to accumulate unchecked and builds up over time, I think that can certainly in certain circumstances, especially when there's external personal factors that are weighing on you, transition to some form of burnout. So for me, I think that uh, a lot of times stress and burnout may coexist for people to some extent. And it's hard to untangle the two because I think that the line is blurred. Um, but my understanding at least is that stress is more a form of over-engagement and reactive emotions and urgency and anxiety. At least that's how I feel. I forget to eat and I forget to drink and I'm just running around like crazy. You know, the day flies in two seconds. Um, and that puts a physical toll on you, whereas burnout is more of this disengagement, distant emotions, um, sort of helplessness and lack of motivation. So that's that's how I see them differently. But I am I'm no expert, so I'm interested to hear how others sort of think about the divide. Yeah, I like to tell my my residents that you know some level of stress is expected and normal. And uh, burnout is the result of chronic sustained stress, and they really need to make sure they appropriately manage their stress through personal mechanisms or, if they can, structural factors at work. You know, don't try to cover 100 transplant patients in a day. You're not going to do it. If you try to do it every day, that's going to be uh, bad for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I would argue that transplant pharmacists have – uh, probably the most stressful job out of out of most, if not all, clinical pharmacists. Um, you know, there, and, and I think it's important for for pharmacists early in their career, even you know, if there's PGY ones, PGY twos, who are listening to this, um, to understand that stress again it comes with the territory. I mean, it's a stressful job. Just ask ask the physicians physicians you're rounding with. I mean, it's. Um, it's a very stressful position to be in, and um, it takes a really highly motivated individual to get into this field. And so, um, you know, the difference, again, between stress and burnout is once you start losing that, that love for transplant pharmacy is kind of where, uh, where the separation occurs, I think, in, in my mind. If, if you're not enjoying, at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, um, and it just becomes this immense burden, then... It's more than just an everyday stress, and that's when you have to start, you know, figuring out what you're going to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the other question that we sought to answer when we were preparing for this was how common is burnout and what's the impact? Burnout is a topic which has long been described in healthcare workers among those in other professions. But in healthcare workers, we saw that the reports say that burnout has been associated with things like an increase in errors, negative impacts on patient satisfaction, uh, it leads to higher job turnover, absenteeism, poor job satisfaction, increase in malpractice lawsuits, and decreased productivity and low morale. The rates of burnout that have been reported in other healthcare professionals, so nurses, it's 10 to 70%, and in physicians in the literature, it's reported to be 30 to 50%. There have been a few 
uh, articles reporting on burnout in pharmacists, with specifically three that we'd like to review briefly in clinical pharmacists. There were three studies published within the last five years or so, which were um, all survey-based. They used the Maslach Burnout Inventory Questionnaire that Alex previously described, and some incorporated questions about factors perceived to contribute to burnout as well. These surveys were distributed to clinical pharmacists through various networks, ACCPPRN, Vizian, or health system pharmacists based on self-reported license information. These three reports showed that the rate of burnout in clinical pharmacists was similar to that in other professions, and it ranged in these three studies from 53 to 61% of respondents indicating that they were experiencing some sort of burnout. These reports also commented on factors associated with burnout, which included younger age, too many non-clinical duties, uncertainty regarding healthcare reform, inadequate time for teaching, administrative duties, difficult pharmacist coworkers, feeling that contributions were underappreciated, female gender, those primarily working in a distribution role, and those working longer hours per week. The studies also commented on a few factors which were associated with lower, works of, lower rates of burnout, working less than 40 hours per week, spending four to six months per year with learners, and that was when it was compared to spending only zero to three months per year with learners. So now that we have kind of gone through some of this uh, recent literature, do you think there's enough research and coping materials available for pharmacists? Oh, I, I'm going to go with you, Matt, since uh, I think you're our expert on the panel related to probably the literature that's been done. But um, I know that at least my, you know, cursory literature review, there's a lot more, it seems like, in other professions rather than in pharmacists specifically. Um, but it does seem like, and I see some positive change across all of pharmacy, it seems like this has become more of a focus. And here at my institution, just this year, we started a wellness committee for our residents. So I think we're starting to recognize that the issue exists and trying to figure out ways and strategies to make uh, the awareness more widespread, but to mitigate some of the factors that contribute. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm also going to defer to Matt, but uh, but my guess would be that no, there isn't enough research, and my lack of familiarity with and with much of this research actually just kind of speaks to that point. This is not something that I covered as an RPD back in the day, um, specifically, you know, talking to residents, both PGY1s and PGY2s, about about burnout, um, and it's probably something that's necessary during the course of those years. Yeah, that's true. And um, so Matt, turning over to you, uh, as we just kind of mentioned, we've got word that the PRN is working on addressing burnout within transplant community. What have y'all been working on? What is the group working on? Um, was there any specific impetus for its development? Yeah, uh, so I'm the, the chair of the workforce committee and one of the goals that we identified this year was to assess burnout and well-being among transplant pharmacists. And uh, similar to the three studies you mentioned earlier, we're going to plan on assessing burnout in addition to well-being through an anonymous survey that will be distributed via the ACCP PRN listserv and then the AST transplant COP listserv. Um, with this one, we're going to be using um, the Maslach Burnout Inventory and the Well-Being Index. And if you complete the survey, which will be completely anonymous, um, you'll, at the end of the survey, receive your scores for burnout which again are emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and per personal accomplishment. And then in addition to that, um, they'll be using the well-being index. It's a tool that evaluates their personal well-being. 
and the, the impetus for the um, the assessment is, you know, burnout's been been studied in largely clinicians, physicians for years and years and years. Um, I was even able to find a handful of papers on assessing burnout on transplant surgeons, transplant fellows, transplant nurses, transplant coordinators, but nothing on pharmacists. And like Samir said, we're 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 a pretty high stress um, profession, and so as stated before. Um, there's been similar work done with just clinical pharmacists as a whole. Um, there's also a paper, uh, been a couple of years now that assessed it in critical care, but nothing exists for transplant. And so I actually found, according to Maslach, um, one of the main investigators that created the inventory, he says the profession, or she says the professions at risk of burnout are those that require an ongoing and intense level of personal emotional contact with those for whom they provide the service. And to me, that sounds a lot like our day-to-day -day job. And so, like Samir said, we are, we are definitely at risk for burnout, but it, just, it has not been formally assessed. And so some of the, the goals that we hope to achieve is one shameless plug. Everybody that's listening, please do the survey when it comes out. Um, I'll be sending you multiple reminders to please do the survey. Um, but really, the, the first goal of, of completing this assessment is to provide a greater awareness of burnout and well-being among transplant pharmacists. Um, and like I said, if you complete the survey and you find your scores indicate that you're burned out, hopefully this will empower you to take a, a better look at yourself and see what you can do to, to work on your resilience before it can spiral and potentially be dangerous. And then the, the second goal of the assessment is we hope to identify risk factors associated with burnout and well-being and try to identify solutions for change. And so, for example, um, if we find an association between the number of transplants performed to FTEs at your institution with burnout, this may be something that you can go to hospital leadership and say, look, we're at risk of being burned out. This study showed this, and you may be able to request another FTE. Um, we have not found that. I have no idea if we will find that, but it's just an example of something that we'll include in the analysis to try to identify risk factors for burnout. Hey everybody, John here. Just wanted to jump in and put in another shameless plug for the Workforce Committee and their burnout assessment that they're going to be releasing fairly soon. Uh, obviously be on the lookout for the link in your ACCP, IMTR, PRN uh, listserv, as well as the AST Transplant Pharmacy Community of Practice email listserv. Uh, we will also, when the link is live, have that in the description of this podcast episode, and we'll be broadcasting it out via our Twitter account, at the mTOR you know. Please, please, if you have the time, uh, participate. Obviously, this is not only going to be helpful for our workforce community, our transplant pharmacy community in general, uh, but it will also may, you may learn something about yourself and where you stand uh, from a burnout perspective. So there's definitely, this is definitely something that's for you. Again, as Matt had mentioned, this is 100% anonymous and it can only be beneficial. So that's enough for me. I just wanted to put in that extra shameless plug. We'll hop right back in to our panel discussion. Um, have you guys ever felt concerned about a coworker exhibiting any of these signs of burnout and how would you address those concerns or help out your coworkers? Um, I'll start. So to be honest, I've really become knowledgeable about burnout just this last year. So I guess I've just been a terrible coworker for years. Um, I, uh, you know, thinking back on it now, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some coworkers who have been burned out and they left. They, I mean, they just, they couldn't, they didn't want to do it, couldn't do it. And so they just left Duke altogether. And um, now I am more knowledgeable. And so seeing if I 
did notice it in coworkers or residents. Um, it's important to let them know, at least at my institution, we have resources that are free. Um, we have counselors you can go talk to. They can give you referrals to, um, to other providers if you need it. And so it's really important to just identify it early and use those resources. And unfortunately, there's a lot of a stigma associated with some of these. And so just being open-minded and, and, and talking and being truthful. I think uh, I feel similar to Matt in that I've learned a lot over the last year or so. And so there certainly have been situations where I've been discussing with coworkers that I'm sure were burned out and didn't ex recognize exactly, you know, how to label what they were dealing with. But um, I think talking to them and open and, and engaging in an open, uh, non-judgmental dialogue where you just listen to what's going on and how they're feeling and what the stresses are that are contributing both home and work. Uh, helps a lot just to have a supportive network of colleagues. I think just knowing that someone cares and is looking out for you can make a big difference in someone's life. Uh, but we also have resources. We've got a whole seminar series. There are free counselors that you can go to. And although I do think there's a, a stigma and I agree with that, I also try to enlighten whoever I'm speaking with. And I know lots of people that have talked to counselors and felt better or gone to our human resources business partner who helps to work with us to accomplish our goals in an environment that, you know, that person's really supportive for us. So I think being knowledgeable about the resources at your center and acting as a really important advocate and support person for your colleague is, is really important. I agree. Sometimes uh, the trickiest part is identifying the resources and, and knowing what's available to you. So if you know those resources, then you can help yourself and others. Um, what would you what advice would you guys have for those that think they're starting to go down this path of burnout or what about those that are already experiencing burnout? I think at some point, um, and some of this probably overlaps with what we just discussed, you know, take, taking a step back, asking for help. I think at some point, everyone really needs to kind of figure out, you know, they need a little time for introspection and need to figure out where they are in terms of how much do they want to devote to work? How much do they want to devote to living their life? And this is, you know, again, where the whole work-life balance comes into play. Um, I, I've always thought of myself as a worker. Now, is that going to take priority over my kids and my family? No, but I enjoy work. And so I, that, that's really fulfilling to me. Is it wrong to want to live your life and maybe tilt the work-life balance in the other direction? Absolutely not. But if you're, if that's where you are, then you can't overcommit and you can't take on additional projects and, you can, but you have to limit yourself. You'd be very careful about overcommitting. So I think, um, you know, for, for those who are wanting to be really ambitious at work, it, it's doable. You just, something has to give. It's, it's really hard to maintain both at the same time. And, and if um, somebody doesn't want to do that, if somebody wants to spend more uh, or devote more of their time to being a family person or having more of a personal life, that's totally fine, but they, you know, they have to kind of look at their job opportunities and, and the situation they're in. They have to take all that into context. And if it's a really demanding 
job, which oftentimes transplant jobs are, then that's just something that they need to think about and, and consider moving forward. Thanks for that, Samir. I think those are great thoughts to, uh, for everyone to keep in mind if they are feeling like they're on that path toward burnout. Um, so our next questions are for Matt and Samir. In your role as residency program directors, have you noticed burnout in your residents and trainees? Matt, you kind of already noted that you give your residents advice, but what are the signs that you start noticing if you think someone's starting to get burnt out as a resident? And is there anything specific to trainees that you would um, recommend as far as a coping strategy? Uh, well, at the very beginning of the year, I sit down with the resident and I, I know when the stress points are gonna come throughout the year. Um, ATC abstract deadline is due beginning of December. And I tell them, oh my God, you're gonna be stressed. And, and that's just, it is what it is. Um, but it once that occurs, I, I try to get them to spend time away from the hospital. Cause I know they would have been collecting data, analyzing the data just in the crunch to try to get that ATC abstract done. And so as the RPD, I know that's not the time for them to give a CE or to go give a didactic lecture. Like I try to minimize the stressors throughout the year um, for the resident. And something that we implemented last year, um, sounds like other institutions are doing this as well. We actually assessed resiliency quarterly when I'm assessing their goals and objectives for the year. And so it's just a touch point to sit down, you know, how's life? Like this last year with COVID, do you have toilet paper? I mean, it's like silly things like to make sure that um, they're not overly stressed and heading down the road to, to burnout. Yeah, I, um, something I think is really important in what Matt said is minimizing the stressors when possible. Now, surprisingly, I can't recall I guess that many specific instances where I really detected burnout amongst my residents. Um, maybe it was there, maybe I was just naive to it, but, uh, or maybe I just had rock star residents, which I, I think I did. But, um, you know, there were, there were occasional times and, and it, and it kind of goes back to what, again, what Matt just said and something I said earlier, which is when, when residents get bogged down, it's, it's not necessarily like everything that's bogging them down, but sometimes it, all it takes is like one, one project or one paper that they are assigned to or have to do to fulfill their residency requirements or, or whatever that really just bogs them down. At the end of the day, if they don't get it done or if it doesn't get accepted or submitted, is it that is it going to impact their life <laughs> forever? Probably not. So I think you have to just kind of, you know, you, you want to look out for your residents' well-being, of course. That's number one priority. And and not get caught up in, you know, checking boxes. I think you mentioned that earlier, Jill. Um, but you, you want them to have overall an enjoyable experience. And so you have to look out for those situations that are absolutely not going to provide that um, or something that's really going to just bog them down and, and try to minimize that, that uh, exposure. Yeah, and I think, uh, like you said, the checking boxes, I think I just got to that point in my residency year where I knew I had to wrap everything up and I was, I was right there and to get everything that I've been kind of working on and shuffling around just to that point of completion. That was, that was the point in my year that I was, I was kind of struggling to get, to get it done and to cross the finish line. Um, but I like both of those coping strategies that you guys are suggesting, um, both for RPDs to keep in mind, but also for our, our residents and trainees who are maybe listening today. So next we'd like to focus a little bit more on the experience as parents. Um, Jen, you were recognized as a super mom. 
by some of your colleagues when we were trying to uh, identify people who would be interested in serving as panelists. Could you shed a little bit of light on how becoming a parent changed your approach to balancing work and life? You bet, but let me start by saying, although I'm completely flattered by whoever referred to me as super mom, the reality lies so far from super. I think more of myself as a surviving mom. Uh, so, so thank you for that, but I don't think that that's really, really uh, true in my life. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about our um, burnout experiences. So early in my career, long before I had kids, I had that tough experience with burnout. And I think that that changed me a lot as a person. And I learned a ton at that time about what my boundaries were. I had no idea what they were before then and how to advocate for myself, how to fight for myself. Um, so going into being a parent, I thought I, you know, I had things figured out. I had good work-life balance. I was you know, successfully managing a heavy and sometimes stressful workload and could do that while uh, not compromising other things in my life. And then I became a parent about three and a half years ago. And that really uh, changed everything. Honestly, it's, uh, it's really hard for me to describe to you and to put into words how being a mom changed me and changed um, balancing work and life. But in short, everything that I thought that I knew, that I thought that I had learned, that had worked in the past, uh, was sort of blown out of the water. And I'd just been happily plugging along and it was like I got hit by one of the, the Cat 5 hurricanes that we have had here in the U.S. here lately. So, um, so it, was a, it was a big change in my life. Um, and it still feels like a bomb three and a half years later. Um, when I started, um, when, I, when I became a mom, I feel like I was someone who I, I really loved work and I still do. And I was fortunate to be in a job that I really liked with an excellent group of colleagues. And then when I had kids, I had my daughter, my world really got shaken. And to be brutally honest, I was frankly surprised at how hard it was to stay focused at that time in my career that I'd worked so hard for and didn't want to walk away from. But I realized really quickly that I couldn't continue the same hours and the same workload that I had previously you know, where I would work until late into the evening, come home and work nights at home, sometimes weekends. Actually, the first week that I was back to work as a working mom, there were two nights that I came home and I completely missed seeing my daughter. She had gotten to bed before I even got home from work. And I mean, that was just, I mean, that was gut-wrenching to miss seeing your child for an entire day, you know, especially coming off of maternity leave. So I went through actually a really painful period in my life for the first uh you know, six months or so after I was back to work, that I spent a lot of time uh, self-reflecting to figure out what was important in my life, what I needed to be happy, what my family needed, and what could be possible at work. And I, I went through this psychologist um, on a podcast talking about her idea about work-life balance, and it really resonated with me, so I wanted to share that today. And what she said is that work-life balance is a setup it's a complete sham. It's not obtainable, uh, but wrath comes in moments in our life. And it's helpful to imagine that you're standing on a wobble board. And, you know, when you first get on that wobble board, it's difficult to get your balance and you keep falling off and you have to get back on, recenter yourself, get your balance. And then there's a shift and you have to adjust to that shift, notice it, and then get back on track. And I think that that's how I approach work-life balance in my life. That, um, you know, I, I have really 
reimagined what that means for me is more of a dynamic equilibrium that's constantly moving, that I get to a place that I feel really happy and confident and centered in both my work and my home life. And then something happens and there's a shift and I have to recenter and I have to recenter. And so that's, that's my approach to it. Um, I don't know if anyone else has suggestions that can help me improve that approach, but every day I, I do my best to adapt to the changing balance and responsibilities at work because there are certainly some times that demand way more out of me at work than others. And the challenges at home, because um, when you have young kids, there are so many phases and so many things that are different and changing over time that you have to adjust to. And I try to find balance in that moment. And I'm often knocked off my center and have to figure out how to get back. Um, but one of the things that has helped me the most, I think, is to figure out what I value and is most important to me and to elevate those as my focus and that those have to stay optimized for me to stay centered on that board. Uh, so, for example, for me, I've got to see my kids every day. I can't come home from work and miss seeing them because they've gone to bed and I'm getting home so late. Uh, that really puts me at risk of falling off my wobble board. So, so most of the time, unless I'm in real dire straits and have to stay until midnight, I go home at a reasonable time and I see the girls and I'm present and I uh, have dinner with them. I put them to bed and then I do work in the evenings because that's really important to me. And with that, you know, in, in picking things and identifying things in your life that are you can't compromise on, that you've got to be, you've got to have as a core focus. I've also learned, and I think Samir alluded to this earlier, that there's just not room for everything that there used to be. And that's okay. You have to, you have to give up on some of the things that you've, you've done in the past, responsibilities that you've had. And I had to sit down and evaluate everything that I was doing at work and figured out what I needed to continue to do and, and how I could be more efficient. Um, so for example, right around the time that Cora was born, I was on the IRB and our meetings sometimes went until eight o'clock at night and they were four hours long. And that was not, uh, not possible in my new life as a mom. So I had to step down from the IRB and you know, I, this may sound crazy, but I started recording topic discussions, especially um, when residents and students come on my rotation. I have a recorded orientation to the computer system and how our clinics work and who the providers are and how to set up your clinic schedule, because it's not necessary for me to use that time every single rotation with every single resident. We can better optimize uh, efficiency by recording those and, and sort of having a bank of information for students and residents when they come on my rotation. Um, so uh, it's been a long road. There's been a lot of trial and error in my life over the last three and a half years, but I think that those are some of the things that stand out that have really worked for me. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for all of those great um, Kind of management strategies. I love the analogy of the wobble board. I think that's fantastic. This next set of questions is um, for Samir. So Samir, you have had the pleasure of working in two very different roles as a transplant pharmacist. So how would you say that burnout experiences can be different for those working in industry versus those working in the healthcare system? Yeah, I, I would characterize it as, as night and day. Um, uh, now I was, um, as you know, as we've talked about, I, I did experience burnout at times and definitely high levels of stress at times. Um, and I experienced some of that in my current role as a medical liaison, 
and and I guess I should preface this with I can only really speak to my role as a medical liaison because I I haven't had any other positions as a pharmacist or, or regardless of me being a pharmacist I haven't had any other positions within industry so um, I'm sure my my director my my boss works a lot harder than I does and I do and has a much more stressful job than I do uh, my wife is in the industry she was a previous oncology pharmacist she um, has a job where she's just on calls all day long um, so I can only speak to my own experience but um, but it, it differs drastically uh, as an MSL there's a lot of travel involved you know there's a lot of stress related to travel um, there's a lot of stress related to being away from your kids and from your family for um, for a few days here and there especially if somebody's sick at home um, but that's you know that's totally different than you know getting in early at, at the hospital and rounding and being there all day handling floor issues handling you know pretty much fixing problems which is the job if your job is to fix problems and then at the end of the day when you're about to go home you get told that this patient has no insurance and you need to get their meds and all that kind, all that kind of stuff i mean that's totally different than the stress that i experience in my in my current role as an msl so it really does differ drastically. I can't say that I've experienced burnout in my current role um, um, or, or the same degree and type of stress that I experienced as a, as a clinical pharmacist. And do you think burnout is as common in, in industry as it is in the healthcare system? Yeah, um, again, I, I can only really speak to my own experience. Uh, and what I know of others in other positions, but I would say, I would say no. Uh, and this is really just a guess. And I think it has to do with um, th just the nature of the work. I I'm not currently working with patients, working with sick patients and even patients who are improving um, and their families is stressful. It's just, um, you know, there's an emotional component to it as we've talked about. Um, it's, it's very stressful. You think about it when you go home. When I, I used to wake up and the first thought in my head would be about a patient, about a patient that we were taking care of or, or a patient um, on our service. That, that doesn't happen now. Um, so, you know, something that I, I guess something that we haven't really talked about, and this might be appropriate for the current topic, is when I left my role as a clinical pharmacist within about a month, um, I felt better, like I felt better mentally, I felt better physically. Uh, I had like real bad GERD <laughs> like for several years as a clinical pharmacist and that just like went away. I was taking like protonics and stuff and that went away within a month or so. And I think the, what I learned from that is that, again, like you know you're under stress, but I don't think you actually realize how much stress you're under until you completely remove yourself from that situation. And, um, and again, um, you know, I think Matt has the right idea in that when, you know, when you leave work, you, you leave work there. But uh, I think in a lot of cases, a lot of pharmacists tend not to do that. They, they think about things or they try to catch up on things. And so that stress is there, but I think you really just don't realize how much stress you're under as a transplant clinical pharmacist until you really remove yourself from the situation. Now, that's not to say that I, you know, I miss a lot of, I do miss a lot of what I did, but um, this, the level of stress, the level of 
um, potential burnout in my current role is is totally different. And I think that's been um, why a lot of people have been attracted to industry in, in, in recent years, especially. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Samir. I think we basically hit on all of the industry related questions with that answer. Um, something that I do want to circle back on, Samir, is you talked about saying no to things. Now, we have a lot of new practitioners out there that might be fresh out of residency that are so used to saying yes to everything, um, yes to all the projects, all the committees, all of the things. So what advice can you give them or how do you suggest they go about saying no? <laughs> Uh, now I wish I didn't say say that because I, I don't know. Um, and myself, like pharmacists and myself included, I don't I don't know. We're just like kind of programmed to wanting to do everything. I think or or giving into doing things. Um, so you know, I, I think that if you again can kind of focus on the things that do motivate you and do bring you some sense of fulfillment then you've satisfied that that criteria of having things going on having projects going on and that doesn't leave room for things uh, other things that somebody might offer to you or that you're really not interested in doing so if you already have your plate full you just have to be honest with the people that who are requesting uh requesting anything of you and and just say listen uh, now is not a good time um and you can lie and say, maybe I'll come back and think about it or, or, or I'll let you know when things open up. Um, or if you feel really comfortable with, with, um, with the requester, then you, you just flat out say no. Um, but um, you also, you know, what you sacrifice there is that you, you, you do want to have a good relationship with those that you're working with. And you do, especially new practitioners, new clinicians, you want to establish yourself in those roles. So. Um, so I, th I think um, even though it might be hard to say no initially, uh, if you could justify it by having some level of engagement with the transplant team and with your with the department um, to some extent, then that 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 gives you the ability to more easily, uh, you know, decline other opportunities. I'm interested to hear what uh, what the others say. Yeah, Alex, I think this is a good question. And I um, have a lot of conversation with residents about this because this is right where I got into trouble was starting a new job and, you know, wanting to gain acceptance on my team. And so I literally did everything. And then I was working, working 80 hours a week. And one of the biggest things I learned from that experience is once you have taken something on as your own and taken ownership for that responsibility, it's very difficult to give that back. Uh, especially if it's something that someone else needs to do. So my advice is always to be very, very careful when you first start a new job. I mean, in all honesty, I think that the first six to 12 months should be a period of time where you're just acclimating to your institution, to your team, broadening your baseline knowledge base about whatever population you're taking care of, because you certainly didn't learn everything in residency. And so you might use that excuse at first that you're really just trying to focus on clinical care and be a great transplant pharmacist that, you know, you need to defer taking on additional responsibility until you fully orient to your new job. Um, you also might consider using your manager as your boundary, uh, which I've used this strategy in the past. So um, if you are ever feeling 
like you're overwhelmed or you are at risk for becoming overwhelmed or overly stressed, you could consider having an open and honest discussion with your manager and asking for their advice and their expectations and asking them to assist in helping you set up boundaries. So there is frequently times in my life where I've said, you know, I'd love to do that, but at this time, I've been asked by my manager not to take on extra responsibilities because we've got other things that we're trying to get done and focus on. Um, so if your manager was okay with that, you could you know, sort of use them as the excuse so that you don't jeopardize your relationship uh, with your team. And I, I just wanted to make one additional point because I recently learned about job crafting. I'd never thought about my job um, in that way. But job crafting, as I understand it, is, um, is thinking about different aspects and focusing on different aspects of your job. So I think a lot of us feel that there's good and bad with all of our positions, no matter if they're in clinical pharmacy or in industry. And if you're feeling burnt out, um, I think one of the good, one of the things to think about and one of the strategies that you can use is that maybe you can change the scope of what you're doing within your current responsibilities to focus on something different that's not a direct contributor to your burnout and and focus on things as Samir alluded to that really and excite you and help to fulfill your drive and are not you know an overall burden or something that makes you not want to get out out of bed in the morning so when you're thinking about taking on new responsibilities as a new practitioner i think it's also important to consider you know, what are things that you really want to spend your time doing? And if it's something that really excites you, but you're putting it uh, on an already full plate, then maybe you consider adding that if it's something that you think that will help drive your career forward and is a real passion of yours. But if it's going to be a burden and contribute to burnout and your plate's already full, then maybe you consider declining by either speaking about, um, you know, how you're you're trying to get your feet on the ground first before you take on too much responsibility or your your manager has requested otherwise. I, I don't know, those are things that I think about. I think all those are, are great. I really don't have much to add other than, you know, at your institution, there's probably someone there that's older than you and been working longer than you and know kind of the ins and outs of the institution and to reach out to them and say, you know, as you've progressed in your career, how were you able to say no without damaging those relationships with the team members and stuff like that? And, and old people are wise. So see what, see what they think. That's all great advice. Thank you, everyone. I think that's about all the time that we have for today. So um, do you guys have any last minute closing thoughts or advice about burnout for our listeners? Please complete the survey when I email it out. <laughs> is, there, is there an amazon gift card coming with that oh man if i can get yeah. some money absolutely amazon starbucks something i'm gonna i'm gonna do my best <laughs> i think i think for me i think the um one of the most important things is to find a job that you love because if you're in a job doing things that you don't like it's really hard to be well balanced and and not be under a lot of stress or feel burned out um you know, at some point in your career. So try to find something that you love and then surround yourself with people that uplift you. Work on those relationships with your colleagues. And, and if you're a working parent, let go of perfection. You're, uh, you're not gonna always be able to achieve perfection. And I think that for most of us, our expectations are often above acceptable. So when you don't meet your own expectations, maybe uh, check to see if you met the bar and cut yourself a break. <laughs>
I think that's a great point about finding, finding what you love. Sometimes I think when I'm getting a little bit stressed or starting to go down that burnout path, I remind myself somebody's getting a transplant and that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important for all of us to remember. I mean, we're in this field for a reason, right? Transplant. Transplant is awesome. I mean, I, I, I love this field. I love what I did before. I, lo I love what I'm doing now. Um, we, we all kind of got to this stage for a reason. Um, and I think we're kind of a unique species in, in clinical pharmacy. Uh, we like challenges and we like the patients and, and the patient engagement. And so, you know, it's, it's not like we just kind of wound up in these, in these roles. We chose a profession that's full of stress, but that's part of the, that's just, that's part of the excitement, the intriguing part about it uh, and um, attractive part about it. And there's so many other opportunities, research and quality improvement work, and there's so much to do. Um, I just think you have to kind of, you know, think about how much you want to do sort of going back to the saying no um, question and having a good sense of how much you can take on at once. And I, I would also say that burnout is probably relative to what, where you fall on that whole work life balance or work life seesaw or whatever. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to work or wanting to put in more work. Um, and at some point in your life, you're probably going to reach a stage where you cannot devote as much time to work. And that's okay, too, because you're going to be devoting time to, to the other things that you love. So um, so I don't know where I was going with all that, but I think that's a good point to stop. <laughs> yeah, I love those thoughts about um, keeping our passions alive and treating every day as a challenge. I think I agree, Samira. I think that's why we all got to this this transplant place. That's, exa um, that's exactly what I was saying. That's, yeah, those are the great. words I was looking for. Thanks, Jim. Thank you all for listening to the mTOR You Know podcast, and thank you to our panelists for joining us today. We appreciate your time and everything that you guys have all shared with us today.